Hi, good morning. We're going to pick up again Matthew 22 uh, from uh, verse 15. And as usual, we'll just start with, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you as we seek to explore yet further the personality of your dear Son and his teaching. And Father, you know that for us, we have put as the number one priority in our life to be spiritually minded and to have the mind of Christ and to have the spirit of Christ without which we are none of his. And we pray, Heavenly Father, then, that you will bless our efforts to, to find that spirit of his, to discern it and master it and to try with your help to uh, consciously conform our characters and personalities to his thinking and to his will. Please help us, Father, in this endeavor, which we know is indeed your will. For his sake, for the sake of all that he was and is and ever shall be, we ask that you hear this prayer. Amen. I think that you can uh, probably see a lot about a person uh, when you consider how they respond to controversy and to criticism uh, and to, to persecution. I think this, this brings out the best in a person. It reveals who a person really is. And I've been through a lot of uh, opposition uh, myself, and I don't think I've always responded to it uh, the best. Uh, and I've seen other people near and dear to me going through the same thing. And, and again, uh, I would simply say that I think our personality is revealed under that kind of pressure. When those who belong to your religious organization, as Jesus has here with these, uh, these guys, uh, to come out with all kinds of nastiness, willfully trying to catch you in your words and twist everything against you because they hate you and because they, their hearts are clearly uh, far from the, the Father uh, and the Spirit of God. And you see, I think, in Jesus here something beautiful, the way that he responds to all this, the, the smartness of his response, but also his desire for their salvation, I, I think, is wonderful. Anyway, they came, verse 15, to entangle him, to ensnare him. And it's the very same word used in Luke 21, 35, and also in, the, in Romans 11, 9, about how, in the end, they were snared in condemnation. That the day of condemnation, day of judgment, was in the end a day of snaring for them. And so, as uh, according to our attitude to the Lord Jesus, so will our judgment be. And that really was very clear with, with them, that they wanted to entangle him, so they were entangled, ensnared finally themselves. And verse 16, they sent out unto him their disciples. Now sent out there, the Greek word is apostello, from whence apostle, and their disciples. So they apostled their disciples. This, this is very much the, the language used about the Lord Jesus sending out, apostling his disciples. The point of the similarity is, I think, to show that there were developing two completely separate mentalities, two completely separate groups, just as there are today in, in the world and amongst the believers. The, the divide, the crucial divide, is between the world and the believer, the world and the church, the system of the flesh and the system of the spirit, the kingdom of God and the kingdom or kingdoms of men. Now, that is the crucial divide. And the kingdom of the flesh, of the world, etc., Babylon, however you want to look at it, kind of apes, it mimics the kingdom of God. It appears externally 
The same, just as when Sennacherib is outside the walls of Jerusalem, he says to the Jews, why don't you uh, surrender, and then I will take you to a land uh, where you shall sit every man under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and none shall make you afraid. Quoting the very words from Micah 4 and Isaiah 2, and saying this, these descriptions of the kingdom of God are actually going to come true for you in my kingdom of the flesh. And that was consciously done. And so the whole attraction of the world is in a sense because it's a parody and a pretty pathetic parody of, of God's kingdom. And this all leads up to the final conflict between the Lord Jesus at his coming and the Antichrist. Not uh, anti doesn't so much mean against uh, as uh, the, the, the copy, the mimic Christ. So then this is what goes on in our lives. This is what temptation is all about. Have the things of the kingdom now, or have them in, in the future and have them in a spiritual sense now. So then, they, the Pharisees come to him with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees and Herodians were sworn enemies, because the Herodians um, were those who supported Herod, who the Pharisees considered to be a, a false Jew and some kind of uh, anti-Christ, anti-Messiah kind of figure. But the point that you get in all the account now from here onwards in Matthew of the Lord's suffering and death is that these opposing parties were made friends together. That comes out quite often. And so you see what's happening, that there is a, a progressive unity amongst those that are against Christ and a progressive uh, unity amongst those who are with him. Now, we need to be aware of that and not be afraid of getting drawn into unity with our brethren. Because in the end, the dividing line is not between brother and brother, it is between brother and this world. That is the, the crucial uh, dividing line between believer and unbeliever, light and darkness. And I think as the last days go onwards, just as happened in the last days of the Lord's literal life, uh, so the, the power blocks, if you like, uh, sort of uh, conglomerate together that the forces of evil somehow uh, conglomerated together against him and the disciples according to John 17 were intended to to unify and solidify together in opposition uh, to them so they came to him and they said we know this, uh, we know that you are true so in verse 16 and Luke 20 verse 21 adds that they they said uh, and that you say and teach rightly, the Greek word orthos, from whence orthodoxy. The idea is that, yes, we know that you're a very right-wing, conservative kind of person, and so, of course, you would agree, would you not, that tribute should be given to God and not to Caesar. And, of course, as soon as he was to show any uh, support of that idea, that tribute should not be given to Caesar but to God, which was the right-wing kind of Jewish conservative redneck position, then the Herodians would swoop on him and say, but look, mate, we're, we're under Herod's jurisdiction. Uh, that's a, a criminal offense to say that you, you shouldn't pay tribute. Men have been imprisoned, even killed because of it. Uh, so therefore, we're going to get you for that. This is why the Pharisees and Herodians were together. And they say, we know you teach the way of God truly. Well, the only other time you read about the phrase, the way of God, is in Acts 18.26, uh, when John the Baptist is described as teaching the way of God. 
Of course, his whole uh, duty, in a sense, was to make clear the way of God in the wilderness. And so I think that um, they're saying, look, if you're following John the Baptist, you know how unworldly he was, then you wouldn't advocate giving tribute to Caesar, would you? They also say, so you see what they're doing, the Pharisees and Herodians are together. The Pharisees trying to lead him in this path of logic and, and uh, theology to a point where he's going to have to say, no, no, the money should be given to God, not to Caesar. And then the Herodians are going to swoop on him, the supporters of Herod. And so they think they've got it all lined up. And they say to him, neither do you care for any man. Well, what a misunderstanding. And yet that's not the only time that people say that. The disciples in the boat, Mark 4.38, don't you care that we perish? Martha, uh, Luke 10.40, she says, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the cooking on my own? Uh, Jesus, uh, of course, uh, says in John 10, that it, verse 13, that it's the hireling who doesn't care for the sheep. It's all the same word all the way through. So what the Lord is saying is, oh, it, there in John 10, is that I care so passionately for people, for Jewish people in that context, that I will die for you. The good shepherd giving his life for the sheep because he cares. And yet the impression was given that he didn't care. These guys, these Pharisees took it and they said, look, it's well known that you, you don't really care for people. The disciples have that impression uh, Martha had that impression. So don't feel when you are misunderstood, when the whole essence of you as a person is misunderstood by those who you feel should uh, get it right, should understand. You don't uh, feel that you're sort of crying in, in your room on your own kind of thing. Um, you are sharing in those feelings with those of the Lord Jesus because he exactly knows how you feel. He was well known as someone who didn't seem to care for other people. When he cared passionately, and that was the whole uh, heartbeat of his life, and that was leading to his death. You don't regard the face of men, they said, just as you know, the Jews are always saying, oh, you, know, you shouldn't do what men say, do what's right before God, not what's right before men. Therefore, and then they, they turn all these things round to set their, their trap up, uh, is it lawful to give the tribute to Caesar, verse 17? Well, of course, their idea was that, you know, this is the poll tax of Exodus 30, which is supposed to be paid to the temple and not to the Gentiles. Well, <clears throat> Jesus, it says, verse 18, perceived their wickedness, and he says, you hypocrites. He says that he perceived their wickedness. He could have just had a, uh, a kind of, um, uh, a sort of a, a flash from heaven that showed him all their private hidden sins. Well, it could be that such was his sensitivity to human beings that he saw and imagined correctly all that was going on secretly in their lives. And here they were trying to make him stumble. Now, he calls them hypocrites, and you wonder in what sense they were hypocrites. Maybe they themselves quietly paid the tribute. Uh, or maybe it's because he says in verse 19, show me the, the penny, and they brought it to him. Uh, they had this law that <clears throat> pagan coinage shouldn't be brought through the temple courts. 
And so he asks them to break their own little law by saying, bring me the penny, and they bring it to him. So maybe that's the sense in which uh, there's, that they're hypocrites. And yet, <clears throat> fault-finding over petty issues, in this case about some wording on a coin, whether you pay your taxes uh, to, to Caesar, or whether you make a big point about refusing to pay and be like John the Baptist and go and live in the desert. Um, <clears throat> I think what the Lord is saying is, you're focusing upon the external failures of others when you are so far wrong yourselves. Therefore, this is hypocrisy. Now, <clears throat> the tribute money had on it this inscription to uh, Tiberius Caesar, <clears throat> saying that he is the son of the divine, the godlike Augustus and high priest. Now, of course, the, the pedants amongst the Jews said, look, we can't have anything to do with this, uh, uh, this coinage uh, because it, uh, it's calling Caesar God and the chief high priest, etc. We can't have anything to do with this. And so they were, they were really caught up about this issue, should it be given or not. And Jesus says, verse 21, Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. Now, straight away he was losing support because, you know, humanly speaking, because people were hoping that he was going to be the Messiah who was going to rid them from the Romans. And he says, no, 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 give it to Caesar. Give it to Caesar. And <coughs> and yet, uh, when you think of his parody of a triumphant entry into Jerusalem, I suggested that he purposefully was sort of deconstructing their ideas of a Messiah who would come and give them immediate salvation from Rome. And he says, that, no, I've come to, to die for you, etc., to give my life for you, and so forth. And so, here again, by saying, no, 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 pay it to Caesar, give it to Caesar, render it unto Caesar, he was dashing their image of a Messiah, that they thought Messiah should be. And this is where, you know, love turns to hate, when the image that people have of the, the beloved, of the one they love, suddenly collapses, and they find it's not the, he's not the deal that I thought he was, she's not the girl that I thought she was. And the love turns to anger and hatred very quickly. And I think the Lord realized that, and in a sense, because no man took his life from him, he gave it. Uh, I think you could say that he, he knew he had to do this, but he was also, I think, consciously aware that by this kind of behavior, he was going to turn the mass support that he had amongst the crowds 180 degrees against him. And that's exactly what happened. The crowd that was crying Hosanna was soon crying crucify him, and he knew that that was going to happen. So he consciously uses this opportunity, render unto Caesar what Caesar's. But then he says, and render unto God the things which are God's. Well, as he says, whose image and superscription is this? Well, it's Caesar's. So he says, okay, so give to God what's got his image. And what has got his image? Your own body. We are made in the image of God and in his likeness. And so, because we are in God's image, we owe God our whole body, soul, mind, every aspect. We owe to God. As it says in Psalm 100, it is he that has made us, and therefore we are his. This is the most powerful imperative that there could be in being human, 
The fact we are human means that we have this debt to give every part of ourselves, of our mind, heart, strength, to him. And so the Lord is saying, look, dear, you worried about this, uh, this Tiberius Caesar, Divi Augusti Filius, uh, etc., Pontifex Maximus, uh, the high priest, all the, all the writing on the coin, and you've got your carefully little worked out plan to, to lead me into a logical contradiction. Guys, you, every one of you, as men made in the image of God, are duty-bound to give every part of your life to God. Yeah, forget about mucking around with coins. Um, pedantry. And this is so true for so many, so many groups, Christian groups of believers, including the group that I've been associated with um, and am associated with, that people spend their whole lives caught up on a wording. We don't fellowship with them because they haven't accepted the amendment. Uh, blah, blah. Look, your duty is to give your whole body, heart, soul, mind, every single part of you to God. Forget about a piece of wording and amendments and disamendments and annulments and disannulments and so forth. It's absolutely foolish. You're missing the point of the personal call to you for commitment. Now when he says render to Caesar, uh, it literally means to pay back. And... <clears throat> When he, and then he says, and render to God, what are God's? This is the word that is used in the parable in Matthew 18 and 25, 26 and 28 to uh, pay back. When the hopelessly indebted sinner uh, had to pay back the huge debt that he had and he said, I can't do it. So he's forgiven. Uh, God writes off the debt, but then he gets his brother and says, pay me, render back to me what you owe. So I think he's saying, the Lord is saying, that this rendering to God what is God's, this also, apart from talking about giving him our body and life, because it's got his image on it, um, there is also a moral component here, going on this usage of the word render or to pay back there in Matthew 18. To pay back to God what we owe him is impossible. He's saying, look... A focus on that, upon the the hugeness of your depth to uh, of your uh, the depth of your debt to God, realizing you can't actually render to God what is God's, and just live in humility and quiet awe at His grace towards you. Instead of going around trying to find fault with other people. <clears throat> Uh, and worrying about all the external nonsense of pedantry to do with, oh, you know, we shouldn't be uh, paying taxes, and oh, well, this appears that we're supporting their wrong idea of priesthood, etc. So then, <clears throat> they went their way. Now, earlier on in the, in the chapter, chapter 22, verse 5, the Jews... Uh, who have agreed to come to the wedding banquet, this is those who have accepted the teaching of John the Baptist, uh, they went their ways, to his, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And this is the same phrase used here in 22. They went their way, they walked away from the confrontation of, with truth that they had undoubtedly had. Now, <clears throat> they could not, according to Luke 20, 26 at this point, they could not take hold of his words before the people. And yet, 
If we just um, I just comment on that, I know it's not right in our text here in Matthew, but it's uh, it's what what Luke adds at the end of this situation with uh, the image uh, and superscription uh, on the coin. And this is um, verse 22. And it says they went their way. As I say, Luke 20, verse 26 adds, because they could not take hold of his words before the people. But these words there, taking hold and before the people, are, are exactly the words used elsewhere about how they, they couldn't physically take hold of Jesus before the people, because of the people. And yet here it says they couldn't take hold of his words. So he personally is identified with his words. John, as usual, puts it in so many words, the word was made flesh. In the same way as God's word should be made flesh in us, and in the same way as there should be an absolute congruence between us as persons and our words. Not just sweet talking, not nice speak, as is the uh, has become the the fashion of the day with all this word based communication through email and text messaging and all this kind of stuff, um, <clears throat> but our words should be us as they were with the Lord Jesus. So then they <clears throat> the, the same day back here in Matthew twenty two verse twenty three the Sadducees came to him who say that they uh, say that there is no resurrection. And Luke 20, verse 27, says that they anti-lego, they spoke against, publicly spoke against, the idea of resurrection. And in fact, they were hedonists, really. They said that the greatest duty in life was to have kids. And that's why, incidentally, Jesus goes on here to talk about the significance of being the children of God uh, in the resurrection uh, and they they believed that, that there was no real future reward, that your reward was to be a good Jew, to keep the law. Uh, they didn't believe that <clears throat> the, the rest of the Old Testament beyond the Torah, the first five books, what was inspired by God, and they were well known for their, I guess obviously, their, their very hedonistic, selfish lifestyle, because they had no hope for the future. <clears throat> now, they didn't <clears throat> give him all this, uh, <clears throat> all this very fictional case about uh, divine marriage and, and uh, a woman who ends up with seven husbands in the course of her life, and they say, and who's uh, <clears throat> who's going to be her husband in the resurrection? And Mark adds, verse twelve, verse twenty-three, that they said, in the resurrection, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be? <clears throat> now, I began by saying that you can see a lot about a person in the way they handle controversy. Now, <clears throat> it would have been very tempting for Jesus to say that, um, you know, look, you guys don't even believe in a resurrection. And here's reasons one to five, why you publicly are known to not believe in a resurrection. So then why are you talking about <clears throat> when the dead shall rise? Yeah, you're contradicting yourself. But he doesn't do that. He takes them according to what they have said. And the whole story that they come out with, where they say, verse 25, there were with us seven brethren, and this happened. Again, you could probably shoot holes in that. So I, I challenge that. I think you're lying. Uh, where's the evidence that this really happened? Who was this guy? Who was he? Uh, where's his wife? She's still alive? 
Ah, she's died. Who were her parents? Um, and so forth. Does she have any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I, I want to check out the story. But he doesn't do that. Likewise, it's quite clear, putting this chronologically together with John's Gospel, that the Sadducees were very angry because of the resurrection of Lazarus and the way that John 11 records many of the Jews had gone away from them and now believed in Jesus because of the resurrection of Lazarus. So <clears throat> their point is, no, no, that was, that was just a trick. There is no resurrection of the dead. Now, you know, that's, that's, I suggest, is the subtext of this whole thing. And, of course, the Lord could have dealt with that a whole load of ways. He could have said, okay, I'll call 20 different uh, witnesses who testify that they wound Lazarus in the grave cloth, who could testify that he really died, and I can call 20 witnesses who testify that they have met Lazarus after his resurrection. He doesn't do that at all. He takes them from what they say and leads them on. Now, verse 24, they said, Master, Moses said, or in Luke, Moses wrote unto us. And the Lord picks this up in verse 31, uh, here in Matthew, where he says, Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? They said, Moses wrote to us. And Jesus replies, God spoke to you. See the difference? They said, oh, Moses wrote to us. And he says, God spoke to you. So, for them, it was all dry and dead, like the Bible is to so many uh, people today. It was just dry and dead, that which is written. And the Lord is saying, no, God is speaking to you. And it's not Moses. They were sort of maxed out on Moses. They thought that only the Torah was inspired. He's, like, he's saying, no, no, Moses neither here nor there. It is God who was writing, and uh, it was God who's speaking to you through Moses. Now, although they had this great vaunted biblicism, in a sense, this great belief in divine inspiration, at least of the Torah, um, <clears throat> it was still dead to them. This is, I think, the background for Jesus going on to say, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, that all live unto him. Um, and, you know, we who claim that we believe in divine inspiration of the Bible, the Bible can still be a dead letter to us until you perceive that this is God speaking unto you, that the, the word is a living word that is speaking to each of us. So then they say, well, Moses said that if a man die, then his brother, uh, and leave his wife, then his brother's got to marry his wife. Well, no. Go back to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 7, and you see at least two things. For one thing, uh, no, Moses didn't say you have to do that, because there was a way out. The uh, brother did have the right to refuse. And you've got a case of that, actually, in the book of Ruth, where there is the unnamed kinsman who could have married Ruth, but who didn't, and so that was all sorted out and agreed, and uh, Boaz was, was able to, to marry her. And also, it, it is about brethren dwelling together. If brethren dwell together, it doesn't mean that if, uh, if you live in Riga and, and your brother lives in London and his wife dies, then I've got to shoot over from Riga back to London and, uh, and basically 
gave, get my sister-in-law pregnant. Uh, no, that, that, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that if brethren dwell together within the family home, implying that the, uh, the, the brothers were younger uh, and single, that's why they were still dwelling together, then they, they should uh, marry the, uh, the widow, the young widow. <clears throat> and yet seven brothers living at home, this really doesn't seem likely. So Jesus doesn't, and as I said, you can see a lot about him in the way he handles controversy. He doesn't say, guys, back to Deuteronomy 25, let's have a look at it, what does it really say? And he doesn't say, uh, I, I, I think that your, your, your story is totally cooked up. It doesn't sound at all likely at all. He doesn't do any of that at all. As usual, he he elevates the questions to a far higher level. It's like picking up a coin, oh, whose is this image and superscription? Look at the, the writing carefully. Give your body, every part of your human personality to God. And, and hang you what's writing on a coin. And it's the same here. Now, they had the idea that the language of resurrection, according to the Sadducees, was fulfilled in raising up seed to your brother. And the Septuagint phrase for to raise up seed to your brother is the same word translated resurrection. Now, that was their idea, that you sort of had your resurrection in your kids. Now, again, this is a pretty, uh, pretty unlikely story because... There was with us, they say, this case, verse 25. Now, what you could say is that all these guys who died with ha having no children, they were cursed pretty well by God. And the Old Testament talks a lot about cursing from God in terms of not having children, dying, childless, etc. So again, the Lord could have made the point that, oh, really? Well, it sounds like you people who are Sadducees are cursed by God, does it not? From your own story, that he doesn't. These are all logical uh, gaps in their argument that I certainly would have been tempted to, to jump into uh, and, to, and to make capital out of. But he doesn't want to do that. Because he says to them, verse 29, you do err. And this is the very same word translated er that is used in the parables of the lost sheep about being astray. You are astray because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Of course, they did know the text, but they didn't really know. Like he says to them so many times, have you never read? Well, of course they have read, but what he's saying is you can read and not read. You can know and not know. And this is a great challenge for us in our biblicism, in our Bible reading day by day. And I think then that, that, that what he's saying to them is that, look, you're the lost sheep and I'm trying to get you back. He was trying by all means to, to kind of guide them to him as the good shepherd. To guide them to repentance and to a place in God's kingdom. That's what he wanted to do for them. But they would not. They didn't want it. But the point is that all these dialogues that he's holding with them are not to score points. They are because you err, you're astray. And you can try to imagine 
the tone of voice in which he said that. He's trying to, to say to them, look, uh, you know, I want you to come back. You're astray, and I'm your shepherd. Come back. Come to me. So his whole argument was not to score points. It was to lead them to him. Now, as I say, there are multiple gaps in that argument. This series of arguments that they're throwing up is very, very poor, very weak, although they thought they were so clever. There's so many gaps in it. The Lord could have had a great time with them, uh, you know, pointing out all their errors of reasoning and scoring logical points, but he doesn't. And there I think I have to really say something. And I will say it from my own weakness. When I was a, a young man, I, I loved to have a doctrinal argument with the likes of Trinitarians, people who believe in the devil, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so forth, and to, to set them up for, for criticism that, oh, you said this, but the scriptures say that. You just said that, but two minutes ago you said that. Tie them up in knots. And, yeah, you have a slight sort of uh, ego rush that, yes, I won, in my judgment, uh, the argument. And then you go to the meeting. Uh, I can remember on Sunday, and I had a, uh, there was a brother there who used to do the same. And we'd sort of shake hands on Sunday morning before the meeting started. And he'd be like, I had the Jehovah's Witnesses round on, the, on Friday night, and I got them on this point, and I, I absolutely tied them up on that. And you know they were speechless when I quoted Luke 20, 35, 36 to show that angels can't sin, and angels don't die and don't marry. They were speechless. And I would come out with my stories of how I tied some bloke up, uh, uh, etc. And that's just ego tripping. That's not preaching the gospel. That is just misusing and hijacking God's truth for our own personal ego ends. Even if you do get some guy to collapse at your feet and say, you were right and I was wrong, and you, you, you lead him to baptism, I mean, I, he's going to end up just like you. Uh, you know, go off and do the same old thing to some other poor unsuspecting guy. This is not sharing the good news of Jesus. And this is not the way that he argued here. He did not, although he did indirectly address their issues, he did not behave like this. He tried to elevate the questions to a higher level and not to make it personal, and he did not take the opportunity to tie these people up in knots. He says, um, you don't know the scriptures, verse 29, nor the power of God, but his point was that the scriptures are the power of God. And, of course, they only believe that the Torah was inspired. So, yes, he's not ignoring the issues. He is simply uh, getting at uh, the issues in a gentle and appropriate way. Always aware that there were people listening and aware, surely, that the whole thing was being uh, recorded by God in heaven and would be recorded in the words that we have in the Gospels. Now, Luke records that the Lord first of all said that the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. And I think the Lord is questioning that assumption that the kingdom of God in the future is just going to be some eternal extension of what we have in this life. He's saying that, look, you think that because you marry and are given in marriage in this life, so it's going to be eternally like that. No. The future kingdom of God is not going to be an extension of this world. And that is how it can often be imagined. Of course, there will be continuities between our personality types and who we shall eternally be in God's kingdom. But this is a new age coming, which 
will be structured around the things of the Spirit. I remember many years ago asking the dumb question, well, what's the kingdom of God going to be like? And a brother told me, can you imagine a tropical holiday? I, I was a teenager, um, and he, I was, I guess, old enough to sort of get what he meant. He said, imagine a tropical holiday where you're sitting under a beautiful uh, palm tree and a beautiful uh, winds blowing, and it's just beautiful, and oh, you're just having such a great time, but you just got this fear in the back of your mind, oh, but I've got to go back to work next week. And he said, oh, but the difference will be this is going to go on forever. Well, no, you know, this is a total misunderstanding. This, this is basically saying that the kingdoms of men shall eternally be extended. And this was their idea that the children of this world marry, so then they shall marry in the children, as the children of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, no, just look at the thing differently. He's uh, saying that the kingdom of God is not going to be about all your legalistic arguments about the definition of marriage and who should marry who and who shouldn't marry who. It's not going to be about that. It's going to be about uh, completely different issues. Rather like Paul, he uses the same logic in Romans 14 verse 17 where in the context of arguing about what food you should eat, he says the kingdom of God will not be about what you eat or what you drink or what you don't eat and what you don't drink but it will be about love, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So therefore, get on and show love, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit now. And if ultimately you're not going to be arguing about uh, food issues in the kingdom of God, and if, as Jesus is saying here, I think, you're not going to be arguing about uh, who should marry who and who isn't allowed to marry who and so forth uh, in the kingdom of God, so don't make it a big item now. Incidentally, why does Jesus call the kingdom of God the resurrection? He says in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. I wondered if it's because he calls the whole kingdom of God the resurrection, uh, because it will not be that, wow, we're resurrected, come to judgment, given immortality, and if you could draw a graph, sort of your joy and the thrill goes right up. And then, you know, it morphs down a bit as everything gets, you know, fades a bit, and, you know, you get used to being immortal kind of thing. As if the Lord is saying, no, no, there won't be that droop in the curve, there won't be that fade, there won't be that peak and then, you know, leveling off. The whole kingdom will be like the resurrection. That, that thrill of that moment will continue. Isaiah everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And I take that to mean that that, the, that joy of, of acceptance in his kingdom shall continue. This is far more than sitting under uh, a, a, a tropical uh, a, a tree, drinking whatever, uh, forever. This is a completely primitive uh, understanding, it, it seems to me. Now, you notice the present tenses. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. And Luke 20:36 is uh, clearer with the present tenses. Neither can they die. They are equal unto the angels and are the children of God. I think the Lord is saying that, in essence, those who shall be in the kingdom are uh, seen by God as already there. And that's why he uses these present tenses. And you know, tenses in New Testament Greek are very specific, as they are in English. It's not like Hebrew, where the you know, tenses are, are very vague and more governed by context. So in New Testament Greek, there's a whole bunch of tenses. And the fact that they're used here, these 
this present tense so specifically and repeatedly, I think is surely to make a point that God is outside our kind of time and he sees us in a sense as being in God's kingdom now. And of course this is going to lead on, it's all leading up to um, the Lord quoting the passage about I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because Luke adds uh, all live unto him that from his uh, perspective of time they are already alive eternally. Well, they are. There is no conscious survival of death. But because he sees their future resurrection and glorification, it's as if they are now alive. And I think the Lord, by using these present tenses, uh, is just leading us in to that and preparing us. Now, he says that they're like the angels, or the Sadducees denied that angels existed, but he's saying that the, the angels uh, don't marry. Now, I think that he's having a cut there at the Jewish myths in the book of Enoch, where the idea was that Genesis 6, the sons of God saw the daughters of men and married them, uh, was being interpreted, as many people do, to do today, uh, as talking about angels, sinful angels coming to earth and getting married. Now, this is rubbish. This is utterly nonsense. I mean, it's uh, for one thing, the classical idea is that when... Uh, the, the fall happened in the Garden of Eden, then all the angels got chucked out of heaven to come down to earth. Well, Genesis 6 is quite some time after that. It's a long time, actually, after that. Many centuries after that. So the chronology of the whole idea is, is rubbish to start with. Um, but my point is that the Lord is, is hitting at that. In the same way as in 2 Peter and Jude, they allude to the book of Enoch in order to deconstruct it, to say, look, guys, this is not the case. That's what it says, but God's truth is otherwise. Now, you just marvel at the way that the Lord Jesus could apparently, off the cuff, make these sort of multiple responses uh, that are, are touching on a whole load of different levels uh, of, of question uh, in, such, in such a perfect way. I mean, it gives some insight into his supreme intellectuality, which, of course, he had as the, the begotten Son of God. So then, he, he raises the issue higher. He says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verse 32. And why does he particularly quote from that uh, statement, from that a particular passage here in Exodus 3 because uh, there's many passages where God says I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I think uh, he does because his point is that this is God speaking to you. Well this was actually God speaking to Moses when he says to Moses I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So Jesus is saying look I know in Judaism there is the idea that Moses is supreme and that he had, that he was supreme because he had the unparalleled honor of God speaking to him personally. But do you not hear those very same words that God spoke to Moses when he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that this is God speaking to you? You see what he's saying? He's saying, You are no less than Moses. This is incredible especially for people from a Jewish mindset, a Judaistic mindset, who consider that Moses was sort of up here, and the Lord is saying, that's every one of you. God has spoken to you in those very same words. 
And <clears throat> we can also get the sense that I am just the humble church member. I just, you know, poodle along the church and do my little bit, and I poodle home again, and I try to live a straight life, keep my nose clean, and I sort of look forward to the kingdom of God kind of thing. Um, but there, there is a far higher sense that, that you are not just a little person who poodles along. You are, in one sense, no less than Moses. That you likewise have got the Father speaking directly to you. I think the other reason he quotes from Exodus 3 is because the passage goes on in verse 14 of Exodus 3 to have the revelation of God's name, I am that I am, straddling past, present, and future tenses. And this is leading up to the whole point, that God is not the God of the dead but of the living, because all live unto him. So I think that... uh, going back, as I said, to the context of Lazarus, that they were raising the whole argument uh, because of their desire to disprove the resurrection of Lazarus. I think that this is uh, matched, really, in, in John eleven twenty six, when Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He's really saying that uh, the resurrection of Lazarus is a, a picture for all of you of the eternity which you can begin to live now. Now, of course, he's, he, that is, I think, putting in other words what he said when, according to Luke here, uh, he said, all live unto God, and God is the God of the living. This is not to say that there is personal survival of death. Of course, there is not. Uh, man is mortal, and we come from dust, and we shall return to dust. And our only hope is the bodily resurrection uh, at the coming of the Lord. But from God's point of view, and this is the point, from God's point of view, he who is outside time, as we understand it, all live unto him in that, in that the personality of a person, their spirit, their character, returns to him. And the spirit shall be saved, Paul says, in that day of Christ's coming. So then who we are is not forgotten. Just as in our human experience, uh, the lives and personalities of those whom we have loved who are now dead continue with us in our hearts as long as we live. The memory of our loved ones and their spirit of life, etc., continues with us. So it is with God when we die that we are remembered by him. Our spirit lives on with him. That doesn't mean that we, after death, are conscious. We are totally unconscious. Uh, But when the Lord comes and we are given a body like under his body, we shall receive our spirit, that character, that personality. This is the, the huge, colossal importance of personality, of being, of who we are as persons. Because who we are now, our spirit now, is the spirit that we shall eternally have. No wonder, really, that people were astonished at the way that he was lifting all these petty arguments so far higher. So then they they come back with another question, and they say, which is the greatest commandment? And they they thought, you know, again, they would have him, which whatever he said would surely be wrong. And I think that they were looking for a specific commandment. And he... Again, he raises it to a higher level. He actually quotes two commandments. He says that the first and the great commandment, according to Mark 12's record in 31 there, is that there is none other commandment greater. Uh, Sorry, 
Um, he says that the first commandment is that here of Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like unto it, that you shall love your neighbors yourself. And then Mark 12, 31 says, there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. So they say, give us one, and he gives them two, and says those two are one. And then he goes on to say, and on those two, which are effectively one, hangs the whole law. So he's saying your desire to make a difference between commandments is wrong, because actually they're all on the same level. His point is that the fact that is one God demands our all. If there was ten gods, then you give ten percent to each one. But there's one God, and that demands our all, and that is seamlessly in line with what he's just said, that... Uh, Whatever has God's image is totally his, and that is our bodies and everything about us. And he's, he's saying that you cannot claim to love God without loving your brother. And this, you know, John puts this in so many words when he says, you cannot claim to love God if you don't love your brother. And he's saying the whole law and the prophets are based around these principles, that my love for God must be reflected in my love for my brother. Now, of course, there are people on both ends of the extreme who, will, who don't agree with that, who think that I can sit behind my computer screen and love God and read his word and be in splendid isolation from everybody else in my apartment. No, you don't really love God if you don't engage with your brother. And there are others who would say, ah, oh, but I love humanity, I love my brother. But it's not underpinned in any relationship with, with God. It may even be performed in a spirit of atheism. That is also not right. That is also not really loving your brother as intended. So again, you know, he, he's lifted the whole thing to the higher level. Now, he then goes on to the aggressive, as it were, though I don't think it was on to the aggressive because they were the sheep that were astray and he wants to win them back. And he says, well, what do you think of Jesus? Is he, you know, whose son is he? And they say, the son of David. Well, of course, he was uh, the son of David. And they would have known that Mary and Joseph, the apparent parents of Jesus, were directly in the line of David. They would have done their homework on his family of origin. And then he, he quotes um, from Psalm 110, where David says, the Lord, as in Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus says, look, uh, if, G if David calls Messiah my Lord, then David therefore is less than Messiah. So then, sure, he's son Messiah is son of David, but that doesn't mean that he is less than David. He is greater than David, because in uh, Judaism, Messiah was a very vaguely understood term, and they certainly considered, as many Jews do today, that Moses, David, Abraham were greater than Messiah. And Jesus corrects this in, in their view of Abraham in John 8.58, when he says, before Abraham was, or more importantly than Abraham was, I am. In other words, Messiah, I as Messiah am greater, actually, than, than Abraham. 
And again, verse 43, he says uh, to them, he, he quotes um, David in the Psalms and says, David in spirit calls him Lord, saying, present tense. Again, it's this theme that the Psalms are inspired. The Sadducees didn't think they were. Uh, so he says, David in spirit, that is inspired, uh, calls Messiah Lord, saying, present tense. This is a word speaking to us. And he, he says, um, how is he, his son, verse 45, if David calls him Lord? Now, he doesn't mean that, ah, uh, well, you know, he isn't the son of David. He means, yeah, sure, this Messiah, who is greater than David, is also the son of David. But how? How did that work out? And, of course, the answer to that would have been, well, a descendant of David, in his direct line, would have had to have given birth to Messiah, who was also going to be greater uh, than David. And I think you could work out from that the obvious allusion to the 2 Samuel 7, the promise to David that this Messiah, this son of David, was going to have to be the son of God. They knew, I think, that he was talking about himself. Verse 46, after that, they didn't dare ask him any more. Now, questions in all the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at this point, is in italics. That's been added because the translators are scratching their head. No one from that day dared ask him any more. Well, ask him what? I think ask him the obvious question. Who are you? Now, oddly enough, these very words and ideas occur again. And it's in John 21, verse 12, when the disciples are on the boat and they see Jesus on the land. And we're told that with exactly the same Greek words, that none of them, of the disciples, dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was Jesus. What's the connection? I think that the gospel writers here are saying, look, we also were the same. We also didn't get it, but the difference is that we changed. And we did get it. But believe us, we didn't get it. We were just like the Jews. And I think that should be the basis of our appeal to men, as it was in the, the gospels, because the gospels are only the transcripts of the preaching of men like Matthew and John. Uh, all the time, they're referencing their own weakness. And they're saying that we also didn't get it, but we repented. And in the end, we did. And that is the basis of their appeal to us, and that should be the basis of our appeal to men and women. Thank you.